Okay. April the 11th. How about that, huh? Lecture discussion uh, number 133 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. That's where we have been. That's where we still are, kind of. Not so much today. I'll explain that in a minute. <coughs> a little bit of catching up here. The last time I stood before the most holy platinum model dry erase board uh, was, uh, what was it, March the 7th. Uh, obviously, I've had a difficult interruption. I had kidney com- complications. And unfortunately for me, there remains further medical procedures that uh, in my immediate future, as they have told me. But for now, I'm in this little respite parentheses period. The exact duration uh, is unknown, but I am still uh, the large calcium oxalates that were blocking my ureters are pretty much gone, we hope. The last imaging seemed to think so. I still have a lot of debris in both kidneys, and it's working its way out. I'm up to 50 almost now, and they just keep going. So every time I tell a a urologist assistant nurse or practitioner or physician assistant, whatever, I tell them how many I've had, they just look at me and, and... break down crying for me because they know how difficult it can be. And for those of you who are recently joining us since February the 11th, I have undergone four kidney surgeries, procedures, both actually to remove, again, calcium oxalate blockages that have compromised my kidney function. Those of you who ask me these kinds of questions, my creatinine levels were above four. A normal baseline creatinine level for me when I had my heart surgery uh, was one. And four represents a significant reduction in kidney efficiency. When they talk to me, they're all excited. They'll say, your kidney function has increased, Mr. Chronister. Uh, that's kind of good and bad simultaneously. It means that it was at a level where it needed to increase. And they're excited for me when they say that to me. The surgeries were necessary to increase kidney function. That's the whole point of them. And needless to say, I'm not free from the consequences yet. Both kidneys unceasingly ache and both ureters are injured. They were dilated by all of the, I don't even know what to call it. Debris is a good way to put it. All of it that had to go down, the stents that had to had to be placed in there. And hopefully the worst of all of it is in the wake. I'm not sure of that. My doctor has prepared me for additional adversities. So I don't know. During my uh, furlough sabbatical, many letters have come. That was really cool. Let me find some of them here. Lots of letters. A whole pile. Real letters and non-real letters. But there's just, uh, I just can't even begin to describe what they're all like. It's amazing. Uh, graciousness extended to me has been beyond anything I could have foreseen, and I am so grateful for all your kindness out there, all of you folks. Anyway, with all the letters comes what? Questions, that's right. And for some inexplicable reason, the vast cliffside internet audience is predisposed to asking questions. Who'd have thunk that? (laughs) What could have possibly have caused this phenomenon? How many other pastors get questions by the gross like this? It's a great mystery. It's probably unsolvable. No one will know why this audience delights in asking me questions. Anyway, so for today, I thought I would answer at least one question. Uh, maybe two. As I started writing, I'm going, uh-oh. <laughs> I might not get to more than two questions. I think I did. Anyway, I'm transitioning back to the significance of Genesis 126. I can't let this sit because it's so important. Actually, you have Genesis 1, 1, 126 and Genesis 3.22. Okay? Those are so important. And I didn't do a very good job because I've got a few questions saying I didn't understand what you were trying to say in lesson, what was it, 132. This is where God reveals his triune essence, 126. He does it vocally. 1-1 implies it, tells us that it's there, but 126 is where he actually speaks it. 
Then God said, let us make Adam in our image according to our likeness. Us, our image, our likeness. He is saying things that are unbelievably profound there. The angelic realm, the fallen and the unfallen, were the targeted audience of Genesis 1.26, if you remember that lecture. Some of those, the two-thirds of Job 38.7, they rejoiced because they learned something about God. He is triune. And I wrote on the side here, triune. Triunity can only come from triunity. There is no other place it can come from. No one else has it. He is the only being that has a triune nature. One third, the fallen, it's my opinion, were shocked and stunned and afraid. That includes Satan. He had never revealed that about himself. And that is a seminal demarcation. That's a moment where everybody goes, "Uh uh-oh, This is different than what we thought. The triunity of God had not been known. It had not been conceived by the angelic host. I know that's true. It's not just my humbler of all humbler opinions. It's just basic logic. How could it be conceived? Who can know this? Who can understand it? The three that are on, I'm sorry, three that are one, three persons, distinct, but the same. Oneness. Who can do that? Who knows that? It's not a triad. It's triune. There's sameness. There's an intricity here. Intri- int- uh, the, the. Get some water. It's intrinsic. They are the same, yet there's distinctions. They're one, yet they're persons. Who could know that? It cannot be known. The triune nature of the Lord God Almighty cannot be known. It cannot be con- ex- explained. It cannot be considered. It's got to be given. It has to be announced by the one who is triune. I've said it so many times. Consciousness can only come from what? Consciousness. Existence can only come from existence. Infinity can only come from infinity. Life, the law of biogenesis. Life and resurrection can only come from life and resurrecting. Light only comes from light, goodness, or altruism, whatever you want to call it philosophically, can only come from goodness. Will must come from will, and triunity can only come from one that is triune. There is no one else in the history of any being of all of any kind that has said that I am triune. And that happens in 126 aloud to the angelic host because Adam had not been formed. So he didn't hear it. Therefore, Genesis 1, 26, 1, 1, 3, 22, Matthew 3, 16 and 17, Genesis 15, Matthew 17, 5. All of those, you have the bright cloud, you have the voice, you have the beloved son. Matthew 26, 39, the cup, let this cup pass, that's a triune verse. 1 Timothy 3:16. that is the mystery of the triunity, the godliness, the one of the persons, the son, added humanity. The hidden truth of triune essence is the mystery of godliness. Proverbs 30, what is his name? They know the Lord God. They knew the the spirit of the Lord God. But what was the name of the son? The mystery of Agar. John 3, 13. Genesis 28, 12 through 13. The ladder, the ascending and the descending. On the ladder, who is the second person of the triune Godhead? And yet he is standing above the ladders. So you see all of this triunity. And it was first explained, or t- I'm sorry, revealed to the angelic host at 126 of Genesis. And that makes that verse so amazing. The only given, and, and I've only, I just rattled off a few passages that attach to Genesis 1, 1, Genesis 126, and Genesis 3.22. And obviously, I didn't do a great job of it last time. I have to get it in because, again, I think it's so critical to understand what happened here and the response to that announcement. Obviously, the name of God, Exodus 3, 4 through 6, the I am that I am, Exodus 3, 1, 1, or 3 14, Revelation 3, 8 through 10. Is that right? It's 2, 8 through 10, isn't it? Let me see. I make mistakes, especially now that I'm decrepit. I've been uh, I've been through anesthesiology so much, I don't know. And when you're under that, they move you around. They don't tell you that. And if you ever talk to them about, did you hurt my shoulder? They'll just look at you like, oh, no, no. We didn't lift you up and throw you down on the table upside down 14 times. We didn't do that. That's a joke. They'll get it. 
Um, no, it is three. I was right. Gosh, I'm right, and yet I thought I was wrong. Oh! Three. I know, I'm getting so old. Revelation 3, 8 through 10 says, Because you have kept my name, I will keep you out of the tribulation. Now, I jumped a bunch of words there, but that's what he's saying. You have to know the name of God. You have to keep the name of God. It's critically important. John 20, 30 through 31, critical. He desires that we know his name and the meaning of his name. The great significance of the I am that I am. Anyway, that's essentially where I left off at March 7 and Lecture 132. I wanted to start with it today because we got a long way to go in that. Today I didn't really want to take it on because I, I've got too much work to do to get it all put together properly so it makes some kind of sense to somebody, especially since I struggled apparently last time. I am incontestably proposing that Satan did not have any conception because he could not have it. Triunity has to be revealed. He didn't know about the triunity of God when he chose to fall, when he chose to rebel, when he chose to not believe God. Inside of the name of God is the implied belief that you believe in the name. And that, of course, is Ezekiel 28, that's Psalm 10, that's Isaiah 14. Okay, that's the introduction. So now we have questions. Ah. And I rattled off a bunch of scriptures there, and I know people uh, don't necessarily catch all of them, but that's why we have these devices where you can stop and hear it over and over and over again. Okay, the first question is from from Pastor Sherman. And I kind of wrote them down so I didn't have to pull out. So question number one, Pastor Sherman. And he is a delightful man, a knowledgeable man. He and Dave argue with each other. Where is he from? Uh, he is in uh, uh, what's the state right above Texas. The state above Texas that could be Oklahoma. Oklahoma, yeah, Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. Oklahoma. <laughs> Barles, Barlesville, I think it is. Oklahoma. Try to make an M, an Alamo, out of it. Okay, that's where he's from. And he says this, or he asks me this. I need to turn around, don't I, so that you can hear it on the thing. He says, uh, can you tell me, he's talking to you, I assume, right? When he says this, can you tell me, Dave, where Pastor Chronister gets his position on the head of Goliath being buried at Golgotha? So this is a Goliath question. That's question number one. Second question for today comes from somebody that I'm not allowed to name. They have to be unnamed. And that's, that's Anna. Okay? She asked about the visuality of the breath of life. So she wants to know about visuality. Visuality. Breath of life. The question into the arena. Physics. Quantum physics. Does the spirit of the breath of life emit photons of light? When, it's, when it enters the body or when it is released from the body. So that's a question about emitting of a photon. That's wonderful physics, uh, by the way. That is the antimatter-matter issue. They say when an antimatter hits a matter, it releases a photon. You'll see a photon being released uh, all over the place in quantum physics. In other words, to rephrase the unnamed Anna, is the spirit-soul consciousness visible? Can we see it? Because I have to, in order to see it, it has to emit photons, right? Because my my physical mechanical seeing system that the brain interprets as an image requires photons, as well as lenses and all the other aspects of the connectivity of the brain to the eye. So, is the spirit, soul, consciousness? Notice how I'm putting them all together. Uh, is it visible? Many questions uh, can be derived from this question as you're going to see. (sighs) Never mind. Third question, that's from Valerie. Valerie from Naples, Florida, because I have more than one Valerie. I can make sure I spell Valerie correctly. I won't tell you where Anna's from because that would mean the the authorities would be notified. So I have to protect her. So she is from Naples, Florida. 
and I will abbreviate Florida so I don't call it Alamo or whatever I was doing before. And she asked, uh, what are the meanings of Genesis 3.17? Now, she doesn't know she asked that necessarily, but she'll figure it out really fast. She has written me a couple of times about this subject. And 3.17 uh, cursed is the ground, the dust, the earth for your sake. For your sake. So those are three of the questions that I got. Now, again, our Valerie didn't uh, word it that way, and I've also added 319 to this. You cannot separate 317 from 319. 319 is, as you know, and to dust you shall return. Valerie worded this as, did Christ come to save both angels and man? This is the same question as, what is for your sake and to dust you shall return? The immediate combinative result would seem to be that the return to dust of the body is for the sake of the spirit. Does that make sense? When I combine these two, 19 and 17, Genesis, for your sake into the dust you shall return, those are combined together essentially in one, in one meaning. Again, to repeat it, the return to the dust is for the sake of the spirit, for your sake. And it has to be the spirit. Why isn't it for the sake of the body? We'll get to that in a minute. The person is in the spirit. The identity of the living being is in the soul, the spirit, the consciousness. So you sh- the body will return to dust for the sake of the consciousness, if you want to think of that way. The mind, that which believes. So there's a belief element here attached to returning the body to dust. How does that work? Let me rephrase it. The death of the body is for the benefit of the consciousness, the living soul. The person is not the body. Never make that mistake. The body has no impact on the personage. The person is the information that resides in the mind. So how is it for the mind, if you will? How, how is the body being going to dust, dying? The death of the body, how is that for the sake of the mind? If you want to condense it into that form, it'll be fine. That'll absolutely work. We, as you know, all of us are living beings and we are not a body. We are a spirit that has a body. We are, the spirit is in authority over the body. The body has no reflection of the person other than it manifests the spirit. The body is not the, the, the person. I can't say that enough. I've said it at every funeral I've ever done. Uh, hoping to get that across. You, your personhood, your identity, your information is not physical. Thus the question, how is physical death for the sake of the consciousness? What's implied by that? Is that, if that's what's being said, and I am suggesting that Valerie is right when she says it, even though she said, did Christ come to save the angels and the, and humanity? Again, same question. I just asked it in a different form. So, so many questions can be derived from Genesis 3.17, 3.19. It's a lifetime of study, which is why if we're going to do derivatives, right, that's mathematical, we're going to do mathematical derivatives, then we're going to have to study also differential equations. And I know everybody can't wait. It's like Christmas. <laughs> when are you going to do differential equations? I actually had one gentleman write me saying, gosh, I can't wait for that. He's my favorite. He is really... Uh, I had have somebody write me and say, you realize that differential equations is after calculus. Yes, I do. I do realize that. So we have to do derivatives and we have to do a little bit of calculus so you understand the under, uh, what calculus is, what Newton designed calculus to do, not just Newton. Newton, he was not alone. But um, But then we get to differential equations. Differential equations describe the motion, and they're a time issue. They describe the motion of the creation through time. And they become very, very theological. Okay, question four. Of the seven things that Jesus Christ said from the cross, he says seven things from the cross. Which one convinced the thief 
that was saved, which one, seven things, which one convinced the thief of Christ's deity? Because the thief is up there. Something did. Something convinced him that this is God himself sitting next to me or hanging next to me. Sitting is not right, but he's next to me. How did the thief figure that out? I understand it's a supernatural Holy Spirit event as well, but something convinced him that Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh. And which one of those seven did it? And this question is going to lead to the purposes of the death of Christ on the cross. And I should forthwith state that the primary purpose of the cross was to save all who would reach for the hand of God. Jesus Christ always saves somebody. He always saves somebody. He's always, everything he does, everything he says will save somebody. Every time you see him do something, say something in the Bible, someone's being saved by it. That's his name. His very name means salvation. Yeshua, as you know, he is constantly saving. He's never not saving. And thus, so you're going to begin that question number four with salvation. How is the thief saved by Christ? In other words, what did Christ say? What are the seven? How did he believe that this is, and I want to be specific. I want you to pick one. How did he know? How did he believe that Christ was God? He did say so. Remember, he he said, you are the, remember me. He said, you are the rememberer. God is the one who is the rememberer. God is the one who remembers. Why does he remember? How do we know he remembers? Because Christ is the one. God is the one. Christ is the one is the same thing. He is the one that writes the names of the saved in his book of life, the Lamb's book of life. He opens the books, doesn't he? Revelation 20, 11 through 15. He want, your name has to be in there. He's the rememberer, the author of life. And in order, order to have life, or to give life, you must be life itself. Obviously, the fourth question is the same as the first question. The first question is contained. Goliath is contained in the fourth question. So I could draw this. Pastor Sherman is asking me, which of the seven things did the thief recognize as coming only able to come from God himself? And that, that that's God. And he's the rememberer. And I need to get written in his book. That's what he meant. Remember me. Write me down in that book. I've only got a few minutes left here. What did Christ say that made that happen? What's attached to it primarily? And in fact, here's the truth. I have to say the truth now. Because I've kind of been obfuscating. What? He's not forthwith. I actually said forthwith, and now I am not forthwith. (laughs) Ah, Those really are not four questions. I've made them four questions, but they aren't four questions. Because the first, the second, and the third are all incorporated. The fourth question is comprised by these three questions. So they're all the same question. They're all this question. So there's only one question. (laughs) Notice I failed to reveal, this is Pastor Sherman, this is unnamed Anna, and this is Valerie. I didn't ask, I didn't reveal who asked that question. That should have been your first clue, huh? The fourth question is Hebrews uh, 2, 10 through 18, among other things. It's a lot of things. That's probably the defining verse of that question. For those who like to speed ahead, if you want to speed ahead, and I see, I see uh, both. One is flipping. One is analog looking, and the other is digitally looking back there. Who is the fastest? <laughs> it's pretty obvious. Huh? <laughs> so you want to speed ahead and see why they're all the same question. You can. Okay. Why did the second person of the triune Godhead choose the place that David? Samuel, 1 Samuel 17, 51, 1754, 1757. Why did the second person of the true triune Godhead choose the place that David buried the skull of Goliath, the head of Goliath, to place his cross? I am saying that David buries the, the skull of Goliath, or the head of Goliath, whatever you want, and the cross is right on top of it. I've been saying that for almost my entire so-called career. 
And Pastor Sherman says, okay, prove it, smart guy. How did you get this position? Did you, did you make it up? Can you defend it? Okay, HTRP alert. Okay. I, I intentionally worded that question that I just asked improperly because I can do that as a highly trained religious professional. Why did the second person, the triune God, choose the place that David buried the skull of Goliath to place his cross? That's an intentionally poorly worded, theologically unsound question. It's okay, again, because that's me. So, Revelation 13.8 tells us that the lamb is slain. The lamb, I could draw a lamb up here, but it wouldn't look very good. The lamb is slain. Before the foundations of the earth, the lamb, the, lab, the, the, the lamb slain is before the creation of the heavens and the earth. Time is a foundation of the heavens and the earth. So the lamb slain is before time. And therefore, before Ezekiel 28 and before Isaiah 14. What's Ezekiel, 14, or Ezekiel 28 about? It is about the first Eden, the Eden of which Satan is in authority. And Isaiah 14 is Satan's rebellious process. It's before Revelation 12.4. What is Revelation 12.4? The war in heaven. Before Genesis 1.1. Before the foundations of the of the earth is the lamb slain. So we start with that. The Elohim, the us, the I am that I am, knew the location of the cross before they created the physical position. Does that make sense? Because the lamb is slain before the foundation of time and all the foundations of the creation. So before that, first foremost is the lamb slain. The lamb, lamb slain. Obviously, I haven't done this for a while. They, the triune God, sees all of time from a frame of observation that is in authority, that is outside of time. They can see everything motionless as they wish, or motionful if they wish. They can see everything from a frame of reference outside of time. That is where Einstein blew it. Never occurred to him that you could be outside of time. His relativity is dependent on frames of references that are inside of time, but I digress. Therefore, the burial point of the head of Goliath is always exactly known by Christ. It can't be any other way. He's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's outside of time, he's omnipotent, he's omnibenevolent. And he knows exactly where the head of Goliath is going to be buried. The omniscient, omnipotent God in the flesh controlled his crucifixion. I am seeing things on the internet that are fantastic. They are beginning to recognize that Christ is in control of his crucifixion. Seeing more and more of it. So, it's about time that somebody figured that out. We've been doing it here for almost 28 years. And in this house, let me see, I started to do that lecture 1983. I believe it's the first time I did that. Did I get it all? Did I think of it on my own? No. I got it from a guy. Uh, uh, somebody copied down his notes. His name was Noble King. Died in the 50s, I believe. I can't remember. W. Noble King, I believe. Anyway, he was the first one where I went. There's no possibility that Christ did not control every aspect of his creation. Revelation 13.8. There's no possibility. So look at it this way. Christ knows where David, he knows David's going to cut the head off and he knows that David's going to bury it. In fact, he's involved in David's process of burial. That's a Holy Spirit involved circumstance and that is the triune Godhead again. God in the flesh controlled his crucifixion. Doing so resulted in the salvation of the Romans, the Roman execution detail, the thief, and the people that beat their breasts because he's always saving. It's critical that you know that, but I'm lurching into question four, aren't I? Well, I have to, because all of these are question four. There's only one question. Can't avoid it. I won't avoid it because I have to. 
say it that way. Why did David bring the head of Goliath to Jerusalem and bury it? Those right there. It's a prophecy just to answer something. Wow, look at me, answer something. It's a prophecy about a prophecy and a prophecy. So the burying of the head is actually a prophecy. And it's about a prophecy that has already been given and about two prophecies that are coming. Neither one of them have been uh, fulfilled yet. So looking at the bearing of the head of Goliath in Jerusalem in a specific place. Now that's the key point. Where is this spot? What happened here? Why did it happen? When did it happen? Did it happen before he announced that he was the triune God? No, it must have happened after. No, it could have happened before. You decide. Most everyone will say it happened after. I'm trying to propose to you that it easily could have been before. But what happened at this spot? Who made it happen in a sense? What does the skull of Goliath represent? Does it represent the Antichrist? Everyone will say, well, yeah, Goliath of the Antichrist. I'm asking, does it represent somebody else? And if so, when? And what did what happened in that spot? God obviously knows that spot, and he intends to put himself there and the head of Goliath there. So I would like to know what happened. The geography and the topography change, but the spot does not. God is really good at uh, global positioning. He knows all of these places and he knows what has happened there. He can see what has happened there outside of time, right? So, why did David bring the head of Goliath to Jerusalem? He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do it and bury it. And obviously Christ intended to place 1 Samuel 17.54 with Genesis 3.15. So I am saying that this is Genesis 3.15. Because Genesis 3.15 is before time. The lamb slain before time. I should interject uh, that the Bible describes the beheading of Goliath, 1 Samuel 17.57, 1 Samuel 18.6. The Bible describes this beheading of Goliath as a slaughter. Goliath was slaughtered. That becomes very important. Again, Genesis 3:15, Revelation 19, 2 Thessalonians 2:8 through 11, fits with 1 Samuel 17:54. Goliath was slaughtered, and the Philistines who fled as far as Gath. So let me put Gath on the board, because Gath becomes important when the Philistines are being when Goliath is is slaughtered by David. The Philistines are attacked by the armies of Israel, and they are also slaughtered, and they ran to Gath. Ask the obvious question, why did they run to Gath? They were killed even in Gath. Well, 1 Samuel 17, 4. Gath is where Goliath lived. That's where they ran. Why did they run to Gath? Again, they were slaughtered all the way through to Gath. But the Bible says they ran there. Why? Matthew 17.33 includes the condensed word. It says, Golgotha. Golgotha. That's what it says. Is this place. Most people think that Golgotha is a hill. I'm saying to you it's not. It's a specific place. It's a spot. It's an exact location. How big is that cross? It's not as big as a mountain. It's a precise size. So I have Goliath and I have Goth. Goliath of Gath. I'm sorry, Goliath and Gath. Goliath of Gath is in its original form is not Golgotha. It is Gol. You'll see it in very many forms. You'll see it as G-U-L, G-U-L. It's Gol-Gol-tha. Mostly. But you'll see it as gol gol you see different forms of it all over the ancient texts. Uh, the Chaldean is Gol, Gol, 
etha. So it looks like this. Gaul, 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 etha. And the Chaldea. You'll have Aramaic, you'll have Hebrew, you have all kinds of different forms of it. So, uh, so Golgotha is really not a single word. It's a compound word. It is a compound between Goliath and Gath. That's what it is. Matthew 17.33 is often mistranslated. Your Bibles will have as the place of the skull. Some of it, it says the place of a skull, and that's a disaster. So get rid of that. Because the article is a definite article. The place of the skull. But more correct rendering, in my opinion, is the place of the head. So not skull, but head. And that will save you a lot of problems if you're trying to figure out where it is. They say that, they'll tell you right now, that there's a hill there, and it kind of looks like a skull. I'm sure you've seen it. And that's the skull that they're talking about. No, it's the place of the head. Uh, the Latin Calvaria is literally bald head. Calvaria is where we get Calvary, right? But Calvaria means the place of the bald head. So that, that lays it all out for you, I hope. That sends us, that sends us where? I won't contest the place of the skull. I should be, I should say that's okay. But I really want you to know that it is the bald head. If you have the bald head, you go to 2 Kings 2.23. What's 2 Kings 2.23? That's right. It's Elisha and the two female bears. The Hebrew word given as bald head carries the implication of the curse of leprosy. Leprosy is the curse of sin. Sin and death. And that is why Elisha responds with the sending of the two female bears after those who are calling him a bald head. He's not bald. They're calling him a bald head as if he has leprosy, as if he has the curse of death on him, as if he is filled with sin. Now, he is a type of the omniscience of Christ. Uh, the curse of sin and death is placed on those who are, uh, uh, are accused. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. God. Out of practice. What he does is when they say that you are the bald head, you have the curse of sin and death on you. He knows that he is a type of Christ. Christ has no sin. He has no death. He must give his life up. It cannot be imposed on him. And so he sends two female bears. And I've asked for years, why two female bears? What happened? And those bears, of course, uh, uh, kill those who have accused this on Elijah. It is the uh, it is the penalty for those who accuse God of being evil. That's Exodus seventeen one through seven, Matthew four, Luke four. Right? I've been over that many times. Anyway, the place of the head of Goliath. The head of Goliath. How did it get there? How did he get the head there? Well, he took the head off of the body, so he decapitated Goliath's head. David did. He did it with a sword. Uh, and note, whenever you're talking about swords, you're going to be in Revelation 19:15 through 21. What's that? The sword comes out of his mouth, a sharp, two-edged sword. Revelation 1:16, especially Revelation 19:21. And 1915, we have this sword of Christ. Don't forget to include 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 12 when you're talking about Goliath. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So the breath, that which comes out of his mouth and his breath have a, have a relationship. The sword and his breath have a that fit together. So he either consumes you with his breath, which is his sword, or his breath gives you life into your body in the first place, in the case of 2-7 Genesis, right? So the breath of his mouth is a two-edged sword that will do what when he sees the Antichrist? It will kill the Antichrist. Now, how do you suppose the Antichrist will be killed with the information I brought to you today? The Antichrist will be decapitated. Because who is David? He is the shepherd boy that becomes the shepherd king of Israel. The Davidic line, right? Who is Christ? 
He is the shepherd king, the real one. David is a type of him. Who is Goliath? I agree. He is a type of Antichrist. And so we see this relationship. When the second David, if you want to think of him that way, comes and kills the Antichrist, he's going to do it exactly as David did. He will decapitate the head of the Antichrist. And then he will resurrect his body. That's another long story. And he will put him into the lake of fire. Him and the false prophet are the first two occupants of the lake of fire. They're before any angel and before any human. So, at the time that this decapitation of the seed of the serpent, back to Genesis 3.15, because the Antichrist is the seed of Satan, the seed of the serpent, at the time this will be, at this time that he is decapitated, he's combined with Satan. Satan and the Antichrist have combined together. Satan has re-entered him. So the serpent and the seed of the serpent will be conjoined at the bottle, bottle at the battle of Armageddon, and Satan will again enter the son of perdition. And to repeat, the only one ever called the son of perdition is the Antichrist and Judas, and they are the same person. John 17, 12, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Now, I am aware that there exists a view that the place of the cross is over the tomb of Adam. You probably have not heard that. There's always been this debate, where was Adam buried? I covered a little bit of that with Naaman. I think that I have a better position than the tomb of Adam is where the cross is. No time today to address the issues of that position, other than to say it does not integrate with question number four, which is what all of these other three are about. So if it doesn't fit with question four, then I'm concerned about it. Question four is the categorical factor. Anyway, the great prophecy of Genesis 3.15 comes to bear here. Genesis 3.15 must be in the New Testament because it's so important. So the joy of it is to find where Genesis 3.15 is in the New Testament. Obviously, I'm telling you that Genesis 3.15 is one is uh, fulfilled in Revelation where the slain of the Antichrist and 2 Thessalonians with the slain of the Antichrist, 8 through 12. Huh. Chapter 2, 8 through 12. So it must be in the New Testament. The challenge for us is to decide where Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled. And expect to be swamped with commentation on this subject. There's no shortage of opinion as to what has priority. Because it's fulfilled in different forms in Scripture. And he says this in Genesis 3.15, as you know. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And notice the order of that. Also notice that the seed of the woman is capitalized because everyone recognizes the seed of the woman is Jesus Christ himself. So who is the seed of the serpent? And note the order. The order is... I will put enmity between you and the woman and the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. So I have evil both times and good following. So evil is first and then good. And then it says, he shall bruise your head. So it's reversed now. So there's an order here. This is a time issue. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity is alienation, it's hostility, it's loathing. Those are the primary definitions of it. Proverbs 6.16, there's six things the Lord loathes. Yes, there seven are an abomination to him. The third of those seven abominations is hands that shed innocent blood. That's again Psalm 10, 8, Psalm 139, 13 through 16. He kills children in secret. That's what he does, Psalm 10, 8. That's satanic. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 demonstrates that that's the case. And God loathes that. He hates it. But his hate is not our hate. It's different. So God says there will be a loathing, an enmity between the Antichrist and Christ. So what will that enmity be about? That loathing. The Antichrist will loathe Christ. Why? Christ loathes the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It's another one that he loathes. Why does he hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? That's in Revelation. The seed of Satan will bruise the heel of Christ. Christ will strike the Antichrist with a fatal blow. Obviously, I'm adding 1 Samuel 17.51 
the beheading of Goliath to Genesis 3.15. The fatal blow in Goliath was with a sword. As I, as I hope I inferred, what do you think the fatal blow to the Antichrist will be with? It'll be with the sword that comes out of the mouth, the sharp two-edged sword. Nothing is sharper than that sword. The fatal blow was with a sword. The head of Goliath was decapitated. Decapitated. Again, to repeat, I submit that's a prophecy. The Antichrist of whom Goliath is a type will likewise be decapitated. Now consider Revelation 24. John saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, the word of God. The Antichrist will go about beheading those who witness of Christ. These are those who refuse the mark of the seed of the serpent. The Antichrist has them all beheaded. If you refuse the mark, you will be beheaded. That's the plan. Why is the Antichrist choosing beheading? Does he know that Goliath was beheaded? Does he know that the head of Goliath was buried at the spot of the cross? Why is he beheading people? In this day and age, you would think you just line them up and shoot them, or what the Germans did to the Jews, gas them. It's more efficient, but he's not going to do that. He's going to behead them. What do you think he will use? How will he do it? He knows what he's doing. As an aside, the ones that are beheaded, they live and they reign with Christ for 1,000 years. So they're resurrected and they're in the millennium as reigners, co-reigners with Christ, those who didn't take the mark. So it's a terrific thing to not take the mark. And they're saved. For today, John saw them. Look at how I have moved into question two, which is really question four. John saw them. I'm moving into question two because I hate to keep bragging about that. Okay, I'm not really bragging. Okay, I am. But I have been in pain for, what, 45 days? I'm in pain now. I can't stop it. There's nothing I can do. Both kidneys are going, we don't like this. I'm hoping that if I keep drinking water, I'll get rid of more debris. But it's it's an interesting thing. People ask me, why don't you take uh, all the drugs they've given me? They've given me fentanyl. They've given me oxycotton. They've given me hydrocodone. They give me oxycodone. They gave me three uh, measures at three, I don't know what you would call it. What am I work, working for? They hit me three times with morphine. How's my time? I'm doing pretty good. Okay. I'm going to get done on time. But they hit me three times with morphine. And the first two times didn't work. That's the kind of pain that comes from from kidney dysfunction. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. And finally, I just get so loopy that I calm down enough to where they could figure out what to do with me. I have wonderful doctors. The doctor that I have, I'm just so impressed with. He's a wonderful man. Where was I? David buries the head of the Antichrist type who cursed the shepherd king. Remember, Goliath stands there and he blasphemes, doesn't he? He blasphemes the shepherd king, David. He curses the God of Israel. He defies the living God, the Bible says. If you look at Revelation 13, 5 through 6, the seed of Satan blasphemes the name of God. That's why we have to understand this name so much. We have to know what he's doing by that. The I am that I am. The us, the Elohim, the 126. He's blaspheming the triunity of God. He goes back to here. The Shema, the Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. That's being blasphemed. The I am that I am is being blasphemed by the Antichrist, blasphemed by Goliath. Clearly, the beheading of the blaspheming Goliath portrays the beheading of the blaspheming Antichrist. Again, Second Thessalonians 2.8, look it up. Revelation 19.19-21. See the sword reference. Why does they say the sword comes out of his mouth if he's not going to use it? If he's using the sword, what's he going to do with it? Christ chooses this to position his cross, that spot, directly over the head of Goliath. Now, 
I will say this. i got to go back and clean this up a bit. I think the correct spelling of this is Gaul, Goliath, uh, I think that is the correct one. So it is Gaul, Goliath, not Golgotha. It is uh, this compound word, Gath and Goliath. I think that is the one that is most correct. Christ chooses to position his head directly over Gaul, Goliath, the place of the head of Goliath. Not a mountain, not a hill. And I looked at this cross and I made this comment this comment today. Why did he pick a cross? He could have had any any configuration of cross. You see St. Andrew's cross, right? That goes like this. There's all kinds of things. But the Romans picked that. It's not really very stable. I've built things before, including this house. Well, not really. Mostly I've reframed it. But that's not a very stable design. And you can notch it in, let it in, if you will. You can rabbit it in. Those are all words that only carpenters will understand. And you can drive spikes into it, but it's not stable. You would think that you'd have some kind of bracing system like this. Kick brace it back to the main beam. But that's what Christ wanted. He wanted a cross. When did he decide on that? Yeah, before time. So keep that in mind. And so I was always interested in it. And I knew that David took this Goliath sword. And that that sword was extremely heavy. Because Goliath was a massive being. He obviously had some kind of Nephilimic contamination. So he is huge. And that, that sword is heavy. And David picks it up. And he decapitates him with it. And I'm wondering how much supernatural impact is going on here. How much did God assist David in this respect? So I wanted to know, this was is this a Philistine sword or is it a Gath sword? Is it a, with the case with the cross, I want to know, in other words, what I'm asking is, is does that cross have a relationship to the sword of Goliath. And if it does, well, that's very helpful. I would expect that it would, wouldn't you? So I looked up all the, uh, many years ago, I looked up the Philistines, the Israelites, the Israelite swords, Philistine swords, but I knew that I had to know what a Gath sword looked like because it's Goliath's sword. I looked up Roman swords. But I think that this cross and the and the sword has some kind of relationship and I haven't made a definitive statement uh, yet. I haven't yet reached a conclusion on the meanings of the cross. Why did Christ select the cross shape? And I know you have all of these people that say that it's it's a doorway, it's the it's the angel of, uh, of death when uh, Passover and it represents the head of the door and over the door and at the feet of the door and, the, and his bleeding he would be bleeding in all of those spots because of the crown of thorns and because of the hands and because of the feet that may be so but then I ask the question it came before the advent of time this design all of this does so did the Passover does the Passover it's the chicken and the egg which came first, the cross or the Passover or the door? Uh, now they'll say in chronological time, which you can't assign to God, though, because he's outside of time. So I haven't quite, I have a lean. I do lean to the beheading of Goliath as being primary here by the shepherd king. That's where I head. Okay, have to move along. Once again, I have failed to cover all the elements of the question, so I probably haven't helped Pastor Sherm very much except to get him started. But uh, I think he'll be able to handle it from there really easily, and if not, I'll mess with him again next week. Now we have unnamed Anna, the perceptibility of the soul. This is like Goliath's beheading. It's not simple. Oh my gosh, it's not simple. Already mentioned that John saw the souls, the beheaded, Revelation 24. So he saw them. So those two questions, I got beheading here and I got beheading here because I have John seen the beheading, the beheaded. He saw their souls. 
And apparently, this all started, there's a video of a medical transport helicopter making the rounds on the Internet. I don't know if you've seen it. Maybe some of you on the Internet have. I had not seen it. The patient being transported dies as the helicopter lifts off, as it ascends. And there are people taking videos of it. And the videos capture an escaping vapor light emitting from the helicopter. And, of course, uh, it's purported to be simultaneous with the passing of the person being evacuated. As, as that person died, this vaporous light exits the helicopter right out the, the, the outside of it, out the top. Now, there's certainly other explanations for the source of that vaporous light that escaped from the helicopter. Combustion exhaust being the most plausible. As it's coming off, it might be something that would have occurred. We have combustion, we have exhaust, we have vapor in the combustion, we have lights on the helicopter, and so that's very likely what it was. I, I don't want to say it isn't, uh, but I also I understand what, what people are doing. Nonetheless, irrespective of Occam's razor here, a large amount of viewers of the video are insisting that this is Ecclesiastes 12.7. This is the return of the breath of the spirit of life, Genesis 7.22, to him, to Christ, who gave it, Genesis 2.7. They're saying this is the human soul coming out of the helicopter because it's simultaneous with the passing of the person that was being uh, taken to another hospital. And that is why unnamed Anna sent it to me. So I've got to reduce this matter to an amplitude that is governable or manageable. And that isn't going to be easy. To, to be accurate, this is an immense subject accumulating the pieces. is going to take months, if not years. The question of the spiritual realm will likely not be answered until the eighth day. What is the eighth day? That's the restoration of all things. That's the post-millennial day. There are seven 1,000-year periods, and then there's the eighth day that has no end. The seventh day is the millennial rule. The eighth day is the eternal stake. Anyway... Don't want to lose focus. Can we see the spiritual realm? That's her question. What does the Bible say? Well, Revelation 5, 11 through 12, John saw angels. He saw angels. I know lots of people say they've seen angels, but John actually said, I saw angels. That's Holy Spirit inspired. He really saw. Hebrews 13, 2, Psalms 91, 11. Angels are involved in our lives. They are given charge over us. We may encounter them unaware. Lot, Genesis 19, saw and touched and heard angels. Two of them. Hebrews 1.14, angels are sent forth to minister to the saved. What is their ministry? When does their ministry really take off? When does it have focus? Luke 16.22, angels, I'll help you. Angels ministered. Did the alarm go off? Angels, I have somebody wrote me or talked to me on the phone and said, you live really close to the railroad, don't you? because <laughs> we can hear the train go by almost every time the sermon is done and I had to explain to her I couldn't figure out well we're a couple miles away Clat Road is where the railroad is we might be five miles away and then I realized no we have a really lousy railroad clock right there that I need to replace the batteries in Okay, Lot, angel, angels 1-4 angel, I'm sorry Hebrews 1-4 angels are sent to minister to the saved Luke 16.22 explains their ministry. Angels minister at the death of the saved by carrying their soul spirit. Where am I? Thief on the cross. Angels minister at the death of the saved by carrying their spirit, soul, consciousness, mind, breath of the spirit of life to, to him who gives it. So that happened to that thief on the cross. That's what happened to him. Angels came and got him. Again, Luke 16.22. Ecclesiastes 12.7, Genesis 2.7, Genesis 7.22. The witch of Endor saw, saw Samuel and Saul too. Both of them saw and heard the spirit soul of Samuel. 1 Samuel 28. They recognized the spirit soul of Samuel, Samuel as Samuel. We've got to explain that. Peter knew it was Moses and Elijah in Matthew 17, but you've got to be careful there. Be careful there. That's a problem because Moses and Elijah are in a different category completely. We don't know what happened to their bodies. That could have been them and their bodies together there at Matthew 17. Probably was. Both of their bodies were taken by God and his angels. So that's a different case completely. That's Jude 9. That's trouble. Thus, the question is first, where are the angels at the helicopter thing? Because they come every time. 
If we saw the Spirit go out, you would think logically we might be able to see the angels at the same time. If we can see them and they come for the, come for the saved to death, then I'm hoping that the man that died was saved. And the chances are he was, because death and salvation have a relationship. We'll get to that when we get uh, back to number four, where it belongs. It's the, it's what the angels do. It's their primary ministry. Why do they come for human beings at the time of their death? Why do they do it? The saved, specifically. Why do they do it? When did that start? Had to start after Adam fell. But why did God say, this is what we're doing now? Because he's in charge of those angels that do that. That's one of their ministries. That is the ministry in my, why has God, in my view, why has God assigned this? When did he assign it? And it is displayed at Genesis 28, 12 through 15, because the angels are ascending and descending on top of the ladder, which is a picture of Christ who stands above it. I am the God of the living, he says. That's who? That's the saved. I am the God of the saved. The living and the saved are the same. If you want to be living, you have to be saved. Back to the thief on the cross. I'm going to ask this. Is it a response, this ministry that he's installed of the fall of Satan and the one-third that went to him or with him? Is that when it was established? Again, it's established before time. The lamb slain, the lamb slain before time. God always knew he would do it. And I propose that it, it is so. It has something to do with the fall of Satan. That is why he put the angels in charge of the harvest. It's why he sends them to those of us who are saved. I wish I had time to do it, but we'd never have time. We never have time, and that's a theological certainty. We don't have time. We're in time. It's a difference. Elijah reveals the angelic army at 2 Kings 6, 15 through 20. And it has this statement about it. He opens the eyes. He asks God to open the eyes of his servant. And so the opening of the eyes to see the angelic army is attached to the floating axe head. Oh, won't that be fun? How do those fit together? Well, of course they fit together, right? What's the point? What's the floating axe head? It is the retrieval of what? Your body? No. It's a lost soul that floats to the top. Pick it up, he says. The point is, yea, a point, find me on page 14. We can see angels. So again, I want to see them. When they come for the souls of the saved, I want to see them. But we're not getting to see them. Why not? Why does he hide that from us? He has to open our eyes for us to see it. Why? Why did he do it with Elisha and a servant? And again, this is a thief on the cross question. The thief on the cross was convinced by Christ. He knew that Christ was the I am that I am. I'm going to tell you that that's the first saying. So I answered a question. There's seven of them. The thief on the cross, when he heard the first one, went, Oh my, this is God. Remember me. Write me in that book. Please hurry. I'm out of time. I will write you in the book. That's what Christ said. I will remember you and write you in the book is the same thing. Father, forgive them. Christ forgave his Roman executioner. And he saved every one of them. Read the Bible. He saved the one in charge. He saved them all. He saved the ones that guarded him. He saves. He convinced the thief. When when he said, Father, forgive them, the thief said, wow, that's God. How did he figure that out? Why Why is Father, forgive them? How did that trigger the thief to understand who he was dealing with here. The thief figured out who Christ truly was, I believe, based on that statement. Anyway, death is for our sake. Death is, death is for our sake, Valerie. Christ is always saving. Angels carry the saved to him who gave the spirit of life, uh, the breath of life to the person they're carrying. That's his breath of life, your information. Valerie is right. All of that is the same question along with John 20, 29. What's John 20, 29? Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Jesus opened the eyes of all of his apostles. So there's your answer. Yay, one answer. Next week, I will explain why Gaul, Goliath, a position is the right one. 
because the position on Goliath must conform, it must subordinate to the first principle. What's the first principle? That's the fourth question. The first principle is that Christ always saves. So what's happening at Goliath, Goliath has to have something to do with salvation. Now there are other views. The, the position that Christ placed his cross on the buried head of Goliath is the one view that obeys the principle that is question number four. And so that's why I have it. Christ is saving there. Who is he saving? Valerie wants to know. That's Hebrews 2, 10 through 12. Did I put Hebrews 2? Oh, I did. What do you mean? I said 10 through 18, but 10 through 12 will work. Okay. I got through it. I didn't fall down. I made it.